Beginning in the early 1920s, the notorious Alphonse Gabriel Capone, better known as Scarface, began his elusive career in the Chicago Outfit, a mafia on the streets of Chicago, Illinois. After a lengthy stretch of crimes, including prostitution and murder, he was named public enemy number one for his crimes during the Prohibition era. Surely that's how he ended up in Alcatraz, right? I'm Kylie Perez. I'm Mackenzie Cup. And I'm Spencer Russell. And this is Caught on Tax Evasion. Okay, I've got a confession to make. I've never seen Scarface. But we all know the stereotypical image of the mobster wearing a pinstripe suit and tilted fedora. So I was excited to get to learn a bit more about the man behind it all, public enemy number one, Al Capone. He was born in Brooklyn, New York on January 17th, 1899 to Italian immigrants, Gabriel and Teresa Capone. He was one of nine children and two of his brothers would, work would later work with Al in his bootlegging operations. His, far his father was a barber and his mother was a seamstress, both from Naples, who had arrived in the States in 1894. So Al actually came from a respectable professional family, unlike many of his peers. It wasn't until the family moved to a more ethnically mixed area of the city that Al was exposed to more cultural influences. His quick departure from a brutal Catholic institution at the age of 14, when he was expelled for hitting a female teacher, really set him on the path to his future though. He initially worked temporary jobs in Brooklyn, but soon sought better at prospects. Here enters Johnny Torrio into the young Al's life. When he joined Torrio's James Street Boys gang, rising to become the Five Points gang. Al, who was considered the big fellow, also worked as a bouncer and bodyguard for some senior gang members. Did you know that it was actually when Al was working as a bouncer that he got the scar on his face, along with his famous nickname, Scarface? He apparently insulted Frank Galuccio's sister, who was another New York mobster. I mean, don't mess with a guy's sister, right? <laughs> totally. Yeah, I had never heard that story before about how he got his nickname, but that's interesting. I would have expected it to be a little something different, but. <laughs> yeah, a little, little bit yeah. more mobster. <laughs> yeah. Well, he was actually like very self-conscious about it. He didn't want the photographers taking a picture of that side of his face and he wore makeup. And it's pretty interesting. Uh, Torrio moved to Chicago in 1909 to help run the giant brothel business there, but still kept ties with Capone. In 1918, at the age of 19, he met and married May Josephine Coughlin, an Irish Catholic. They had one child together, Sonny, and remained married until his death. He tried to settle down and actually worked as a bookkeeper, but it didn't take long for him to return to his gangster role. So now that McKenzie gave you a quick introduction to the early life of Mr. Capone, I think now would be a good time to take a break and introduce you to the era that eventually led to the rise and fall of Al Capone. So this era in U.S. history that lasted from 1920 to 1933 was known as Prohibition. And Prohibition actually got its roots a little farther back in the mid-1800s in a movement known as the Temperance Movement. This movement was the nation's first serious anti-alcohol movement, and it was mainly rooted in America's Protestant churches. One of the most popular and influential groups in bringing out prohibition was the Women's Christian Temperance Union. 
They were led by a woman by the name of Frances Willard, and they lobbied for laws restricting alcohol and even created an anti-alcohol campaign that was taught in almost every school in the nation. They portrayed alcohol as an evil that was the cause of countless numbers of diseases and deaths. Prohibition itself started at the state and local level and became very popular among rural, southern, and western states. And by the early 1900s, prohibition became a national movement. On January 16, 1919, the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, or the Volstead Act, was ratified and went into effect the next year, which I actually found out that the law did not specifically outlaw the consumption of alcohol. It was more just concerned with the production and sales. So a bunch of people used the year between when it was actually um, ratified and when it went into effect to stock up on beer, wine, and liquor. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. And another thing is that I discovered is that doctors during this era were able to give prescriptions for whiskey. So for some people, their doctors became their own personal bartender. Also, alcohol consumption was allowed for certain religious activities, such as communion at church, and the demand for this sacramental wine skyrocketed during Prohibition. You know, something, something really funny is we actually saw here in Texas um, when the pandemic hit, people just stocking up on beer and wine and liquor right before we all had to be quarantined at home. So, I mean, you would walk into like Specs and we would be empty shelves everywhere. Everybody like came in and looted all the liquor because they wanted to be able to drink at home while they were stuck at home. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of the same things happen uh, during this time. So I will say that it is important to note that alcohol consumption in the U.S. was absurd during the early 1900s. The average adult drank about 2.5 gallons of pure alcohol a year, or roughly 13 drinks a week, which is about three times the amount of alcohol that the average American consumes today. So there definitely were some strong arguments for changing the laws on alcohol, but the idea of getting that getting rid of alcohol completely would lead to massive productivity in this almost utopian society was pretty far off. Although the total consumption decreased in the early years, near the end, it rose back to nearly 70% of the average consumption before the law went into effect. So when you look at it also from a financial perspective, the federal government heavily depended on alcohol and before prohibition, as much as 30% of the federal revenue had come from the excise tax on alcohol. You said that back then the average person drank 13 drinks a week. Yeah, I like. thought that was crazy. <laughs> so yeah, where, where there used to be bars and saloons, there were now illegal drinking dens known as speakeasies or blind pigs, which by the end of the decade were numbered at an estimated 200,000, which is a crazy number. Okay, so the, and the issue that is most important to this topic is the popularity of alcohol in large cities such as Chicago and New York led to massive increase in organized crime. When American cities continued to demand alcoholic beverages, criminals stepped in to meet the demand by illegitimate means. The face of the rise of organized crime during this movement was none other than Al Capone. So all of this to say that prohibition was not very successful and a lot of people who originally argued for prohibition eventually were the ones who wanted it gone. So in 1933, the 21st Amendment was ratified as a proclamation from President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and the amendment repealed the 18th Amendment, ending the increasingly unpopular nationwide pro prohibition of alcohol. In 1920, Al moved to Chicago at the invitation of his mentor, Torrio. With the introduction of prohibition in 1919, as Spencer explained, organized crime became even more profitable. 
The local gang there was run by James Big Jim Colosimo, and it's rumored that Torrio and Capone were actually involved in his murder, which occurred shortly after Al's moved to the city. Torrio was now the new head of the gang, and Capone was his trusted right-hand man. Perfect place to be. Torrio represented a new dawn in the violently crude gangster culture, and with Al, was able to transform it into a corporate empire. Despite his attempts to mediate between the different gangs, conflicts flared over territory disputes, which would ultimately lead to his demise. In 1925, Torrio was shot by rival gang members in an assassination attempt. Although he survived, he was severely wounded and chose to retire. He passed the crown onto the only 25, Al Capone, who became one of the most powerful men in Chicago. This is where the legacy begins. I think it's um, kind of ironic that uh, Torrio and Capone decided to um, be, be involved in um, Colosimo's murder to be the new head of the gang. And then Torrio comes on and another gang tries to assassinate him. It's kind of like karma, right? Yeah, for sure. Because it wasn't long after that, that it actually happened. Like it was only within a few years. So, I mean, Capone was 19 when he got oh, married. Wow. And then he was 25 when this happened. So about six years that he was in Chicago before. Crazy. Yeah. This is crazy. Yeah. And he worked as a bouncer there too. Capone quickly proved to be a ruthless gang leader and expanded his empire through violence and intimidation. He became the crime czar of Chicago, running gambling, prostitution, and bootlegging rackets. The funds he earned from these operations were used to pay the law enforcement officials to turn a blind eye. Capone also became influential in the local Chicago politics. In 1928, Capone was a key figure between, behind a bloody bombing campaign, which included over 62 bombs and the deaths of two politicians. You know, it's, yeah. one, it's one thing to be into gambling and bootlegging, but to start making bombs? <laughs> yeah, interesting hobby. Yeah, his, um, he's very violent. I think it's also bizarre just like imagining a like a society where you could pay off the police to like kind of get whatever you want. I just think that's like kind of something that like seems like it would almost be impossible. Like those people that you would think that we're supposed to be protecting, like you could just pay them off. It's kind of a scary thought, I guess. Well, he also donated a bunch to the politi- local politicians too. So yeah. they made the rules, the laws. Right. Hey, what's that? What's that saying? Money makes the world go round. True. True, true. Among other things, Torrio taught Capone the the importance of maintaining a respectable front while running a racketeering business. So despite all the deaths associated with Capone's mafia, he was a popular public figure. He presented an image of the smart businessman offering the public what they wanted, dressed smartly and wearing extravagant jewelry. Photos of Capone in these suits became the caricature of the prohibition mobster that is now frequently depicted in popular culture. The conflict and rivalry rivalry with the other gangs was never far from the surface though. On February 14th, 1929, under Capone's orders, 
His men dressed up as policemen and shot seven members of the North Side gang. They had them line up against a wall and then others members came in and their with their submachine guns and killed the Northside gang members. The shocking images of the dead men lying against a wall was the tipping point for Capone's public image. This level of violence turned many against Capone, but the eyes of the FBI were now turned right on him. The FBI and law officials just could not get anyone to testify against Capone on more serious charges. The newspaper though, newspapers, though, had already defined him as public enemy number one. I mean, who would have thought when the St. Valentine's Day massacre was one of the most infamous gangland massacres in history that this was the beginning of the end for Al Capone? I actually read that the only thing that they could get him on after this Valentine's Day massacre was a illegal weapons charge. That was it, because they couldn't get any of his gang members to testify against him. And he was, I also read that uh, he is believed to have actually murdered 33 people that they can't wow. ever find any, um, they couldn't find any evidence on um, any of these charges, so they couldn't charge him with anything. Yeah, I think it was, it's crazy that he could just like hide all these crimes and all this bad stuff that he was doing so well. I guess he just put the fear in people that he would kill them or their family or I don't know what, but I think it's crazy that he could just hide all this stuff. Definitely. Absolutely. Um, I actually found a really interesting story. Uh, I'm a horror fan, so it's interesting to me, mm-hmm. but he actually wined and dined. So he treated two of his men to dinner um, and he'd heard of this tradition where you wine and dine traitors and then you kill them. So he actually ended up taking a baseball bat and killing these two traitors and, and with a big group of people around. That's crazy. I mean, and even with a bunch of people, I mean, witnesses around. That's- yeah. Absolutely crazy. After only spending nine months in jail on illegal weapons charges, the FBI knew that they needed to catch Capone on something more substantial. Who better than to call the United States Treasury Department? Because, I mean, who can you count on more than the IRS to uh, get their money from people? So (laughs) still true to this thing. (laughs) The Treasury Department finally received their smoking gun after the trial of United States versus Sullivan. In previous arguments, many criminals, including Capone himself later on, claimed that because of the Fifth Amendment, protecting yourself from self-incrimination, you did not have to claim illegal income as part of gross income. In the 1927 court hearing of United States versus Sullivan, the judge, however, disagreed, stating that because of IRS section 213, Gross income includes gains, profits, and income derived from the transaction of any business carried on for gain or profit, or gains or profits and income derived from any source whatsoever. Now, the judge emphasized any source whatsoever. Um, Thus, the judge went ahead um, and ruled that gains from illicit traffic of liquor are subject to the income tax. Um, this is kind of where we get to the joke that um, 
I, I uh, went to undergrad at Texas Tech University and we had a, a couple of professors that would use the joke that, oh, even drug dealers have to pay income on their money. <laughs> so that's where we get the court precedent for it anyway. <laughs> is this really the court precedent for that? Like, is this where that was officially like any income? No matter what. Yeah, yeah. This is this is the court precedent that a lot of people use um, when uh, people are found to be making illegal income. That they were like, "Well, you still got to pay taxes on it." The IRS doesn't care how you make the money; they just want a cut of it. So, <laughs> on March thirteenth, nineteen thirty-one, Al Capone was indicted on charges of tax evasion for failing to file in nineteen twenty-four, as well as charges for not filing his gains on illicit liquor trafficking from 1925 to 1929. On June 16th, 1931, Capone decided to plead guilty to the tax evasion charges and bragged to the press about a two and a half year sentence he struck in a deal. The judge, however, told Capone that he was unaware of any deal and he would reject the deal if it came to his desk regardless. Obviously, Al Capone then changed his plea to not guilty. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. I'm, I mean, you know, if you're bragging about it to everybody around you, most likely they're going to be like, oh, no, that's off the table. Well, he was so confident, you know, he had all this power for so long. He was untouchable. Yeah, especially because he was paying off the police. I mean, he didn't think he was ever going to get caught for anything. Yeah, for yeah. sure. That is crazy. But it's interesting to hear that the judge was like, no way, you're not getting a deal. <laughs> yeah. We finally got you. Yeah, you picked on the wrong guy here. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I read this somewhere. I don't know exactly um, which source it came from, but apparently he like bribed or threatened the jury in the case. And at the last minute, they switched the jury. So he was so confident in the courtroom because he knew that he was going to win the case because the jury was on his side. But at the last second, they switched the um jury and it all fell apart and that's how he um got arrested so i thought that was pretty interesting oh wow I, yeah, yeah i didn't sure. i didn't see that that's all awesome. that i mean uh, i'm glad he finally had to uh pay penance for his crime so sure. yeah well and i think that it really explains the look on his face on the um podcast picture he still it's like it hasn't hit him yet, the reality of it. He was so sure that he wouldn't lose. Yeah, yeah definitely. definitely. Following his trial, Capone was convicted of three felony counts of tax evasion and two misdemeanor counts of failing to file a tax return. Capone was sentenced to 11 years in federal prison, a fine of $500,000, and court costs of $30,000. Additionally, Capone was ordered to pay back $215,000 plus interest for back paid taxes. His back paid taxes alone amount to almost $3 million in today's dollars. He must have made a lot of money. Uh, yeah, because actually um, he paid all of it off like before he went into jail. He was, it was like, it was like chump change to him. Was, I, wow. I mean, Three million dollars. That's crazy to me. After Capone's two appeals were rejected, he was sent to the U.S. Penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia, and just two years later moved to his new home in Alcatraz. 
Capone ended up serving only seven years, six months, and 15 days of his 11-year sentence, but died from complications of syphilis in 1947, seven years after leaving his um, former home in Alcatraz. So, y'all, what do we think about Al Capone? Yeah, I watched a movie a couple weeks ago called The Untouchables, and it was about Al Capone, and it, it's pretty accurate to what actually happened. It's pretty pretty good movie. That's cool. I mean, he was so open and public. I'm sure there's many records of everything that he did. Definitely. You can actually find a bunch of um, video clips of his voice. And I mean, you can hear how smug he is just from him talking to the press and stuff like that. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. Do you all think that his obsession with like money and material things and clothes and like speaking to the press. Do you think that's why he is Al Capone today? Like why everyone knows him, why there's 20 different movies and TV shows made about him. Do you think it's largely in part because he was so out there in the media? Cause I'm sure there was other people like him that were in that same type of business, but. Well, I mean, absolutely that between that and I mean, he was very, what was they said it, he was very suave with the media he was always talking to them you know he was very much in their pocket or they were in his I mean I was thinking about it I I mean I think absolutely it was a part of what he did with the media and how out there he was because I mean if you think about it have you ever heard of James Big Jim Cosmo? I mean he was a pretty famous mobster in Chicago a little bit before Al Capone and we never hear anything about him and I think that that the media is a huge part of it yeah for sure and I guess like the era of history that this was in like prohibition was such a like it's kind of a crazy idea now so I think him being so involved in such a era that was like so remembered in history also led to him being what he is today definitely yep absolutely Along with all of his brutal acts. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. that too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I honestly think that he would still probably, he probably would have never gotten caught on anything if it weren't for the St. Valentine's Day massacre. If he hadn't have done, I, I really think that nobody would have turned against him. The FBI wouldn't have been after him if he just, you know, had not killed a bunch of people in the rival gang. <laughs> Or, you know, cleaned it up. Yeah, yeah, or that. <laughs> now remember, I'm Kylie Perez. I'm Mackenzie Cup. And I'm Spencer Russell. And this was Caught on Tax Evasion. Mm-hmm.